So Sangha, tonight I would first like to invite you to do a little meditative exercise with me. Playing a little with the aggregates. This is a riff on an Ajahn Sumedho exercise. So inviting you to be comfortable in your meditation posture. Close your eyes if that is how you practice. Feeling into the body. Connecting with the present moment. And just grounding the attention here and now in the arising of the breath sensations of the body or an open awareness as you do. Guiding yourself in. Now I just invite you to bring some words to mind, two sentences. The first is, I am so-and-so, insert your name. So for me, I am Tara Malay. I am happily meditating. Second sentence is, I am happily meditating. So I am so-and-so, I am happily meditating. I'm just continuing to recreate those sentences, those words. Refabricating them, just allowing them to be there. Noticing how they manifest. Does it feel like they get in the way of meditating? I am so and so, I am happily meditating. Does the word happily actually produce a sense of happiness or any other emotion? Could be irritation. I am so and so, and I am happily meditating, just noticing. And now remove the word happily. I am so-and-so. I am meditating.
And now remove the whole second sentence. I am so and so. I'm just recreating it in the mind's eye, allowing it to be. Can it just be known? And now remove your last name, your surname. And removing the first name, I am. And now removing am. And now removing I. Noticing what flows. So you may have noticed the words kind of shimmer and appear and reappear. So you had to recreate them over and over. Or anything, anything else you may have noticed. There's no, was not an exercise to produce particular right conditions or particular outcome, but to explore the way the mind thinks, feels, and how we can know different states of mind, different relationships to fabricating, different relationships to creating relatively solid or perhaps relatively uh, or less substantial senses of self. And I wanted to do that little exercise because today I'm going to talk about the fourth aspect of our experience that we are prone to cling to 
to create a self out of. I've been talking about these aspects typically called the aggregates, the five aggregates of clinging. Uh, and the, that's the typical translation. Um, I like to use different translations because I think aggregate is not so helpful. It makes it seem these, this list difficult to comprehend, I think more difficult than it needs to be, and isn't quite accurate to the actual meaning. It's just a list of a description of our experience in list form, like the six sense bases. But it includes the six sense bases in the first aspect of our experience, which is form, all form. It includes the five sense bases, I should say, or the ones that we think of. And then the whole six sense base of the mind is illuminated much more in this list, five aspects of the mind and so that's one of the reasons it's fascinating is that the Buddha really described a lot of our our functions the functions of our mind in this teaching in this description so I have been many of you were not here earlier in the month but I've been giving a series of talks on aspects of these aspects of our experience called the aggregates um, the first I talked about, an, I did an overview, talking about all of them a bit. And then I gave a talk focused on Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, and neither. That aspect of our experience where every contact at every sense door, including the mind, comes along with you know, an automatic experience that we have, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. And then perception, that function of the mind, where each time we have an experience at the sense door, including the mind, the mind calls on memory and tries to recognize it, name it. It gives a conceptual overlay to experience, recognizes experience. And tonight I'm going to talk about sankhara, which is, whoa, that's something to define. And so I'll go into that. And the fifth one is consciousness. So I haven't talked much about form. There's a lot of... It's, it's an aspect of experience that there's a lot of time spent. Get, you know, Many talks given on practicing with form, aspects of the body, which of course include the breath. Um, But I've touched a little bit into form, talking last time about insubstantiality of form that we can see, the way that perception can change in noticing form over time in the practice, to see it as more insubstantial and impermanent. Um, Today I just want to touch into it a little bit in talking about how it can be such a gateway to seeing everything else. We can just practice with form, as many of you may be, just practicing with the breath, just practicing mostly with the body. You know, there's the somewhat famous quote by Munindraji that he, I've heard referenced in many talks by Joseph Goldstein and Kamala Masters and others, that all you have to do is sit and know you're sitting and the whole dharma will unfold. 
to sit and know you're sitting. So beginning just with form, with the body. And that's because the mind, all these aspects of our mind will become illuminated in relationship to the body. The hindrances will arise. Everything will be seen. Sankara will be seen. Hindrances are a part of the sankara. So it's all in the mix. All the aggregates, kind of all the time, no matter what practice we're doing. Even metta, as I'll touch on later. So sankara, it has different meanings in different contexts in the suttas, which adds to the complexity. Great. Sometimes it means everything. (laughs) Everything but nibbana. Sometimes it means all conditioned things. Absolutely everything. But the meaning is context-dependent. And so, in the context of the aggregates or the aspects of experience we are prone to cling to, it means something more specific. And here are some of the definitions, the translations given by uh, well-renowned translators. Bhikkhu Bodhi calls them volitional formations. Ajahn Brahm calls Sankara the will. Bhante Sujato calls Sankara choices. Tanisaro Bhikkhu calls Sankara determinations. <laughs> Ajahn Suchitu calls Sankara programs. And Gil Fronstall calls Sankara mental constructs. <laughs> so this is fun. Um, and that's just a sampling. Right. So let's dive in here and see what we can explore about what sankara are. I like to think of them, I like to kind of combine in my mind the translations of volitional formations and programs. So Bhikkhu Bodhi and Ajahn Suchito. I like to do that because it's really important to understand with sankara the root factor of mind of chaitna in Pali, which is often translated as volition or intention, chaitna, which is spelled C-E-T-A-N-A. So there is volition as a kind of a primary aspect of sankara. It's not the only thing experienced, but volition or intention, chaitna. And But it's really helpful to think of them as programs, too. Kind of because that's how it feels like they're experienced so much. And it points to the fact that this word of volition, intention, doesn't correspond to the English word in that it's it's not deliberate intentions. We can see this just flowing intention and sankhara as a whole, just flowing, not in our direct control in the moment, just arising, not unbidden, not controlled, so very much like computer programs, which is Ajahn, what Ajahn Suchito uses as a, a kind of a similar metaphor for these sankara. So as a practical matter, they take sankara take the form of our intentions, our to all to speak, act, think, intentions with our mind, our speech, and our action takes the form of our thoughts, our emotions, habits of mind, beliefs, views, 
All of these experiences are rising in the mind. And they're all, this is a more complex area, right, than Vedana, the pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, perception, that bare function of recognizing consciousness, which knows experience. Sankara falls in here, encompassing a lot of our mental experience that we're, where, where there's a lot of intention involved, which makes it key, because what did the Buddha said? He said, intention is karma. Our um, intentional actions produce karma. So I touched on some of this area when I talked last time about proliferation of thought. The Buddha said, what one feels, one perceives. So what one has an experience of Vedana with, one then perceives, one reasons about, what one reasons about, one proliferates about in the mind, and then these proliferations assail the mind. So there's all of these aspects of our experience are happening in every moment. Everyone, form, perception, Vedana, consciousness, Sankara, all happening in every moment. So sometimes it's difficult to tease out. We don't necessarily need to. But to understand as we're doing the practice, what we're seeing is the interplay of all of these experiences. And then seeing that what we often take these to be ourselves. They're running so much on automatic. And we certainly with Sankara, right? Wow, our beliefs, our emotions, our thoughts, very sticky in the mind. Oftentimes a challenge to practice with. So the the simile that the Buddha uses for Sankara points to this uh, real stickiness. And also the the kind of sense of actual um, really, really feels like self, and then you discover, oh, wow, this actually isn't where it is even here. So the simile the Buddha used is that Sankara are like uh, banana trees. So they, you, it's as if a person is going searching for a solid tree that has a heartwood in it. And they come upon a banana tree and they think it's solid and then they cut it and in the midst of a banana is just hollow. Banana tree is just hollow. So it's coreless. There's actually not a self to be found there. So I want to take a step back and just talk about this core function of mind of intention or volition, chetna. I'm going to call it chetna. Because it has this very specific meaning and it it refers to that intent, that chetna, that intention we have that precedes every single act of body, speech, or mind. Every thought, every movement, every word that comes out of our mouth precedes it. So it's running all the time, kind of in the background, happening, in, that's preceding everything we do. And it's very helpful if you haven't spent particular time and you know you're doing Vipassana practice to take some time to actually practice with Chaitanya if you haven't done it in a in a kind of a deliberate way in the past. Even in our 
kind of longer retreats over at the retreat center. Even if you go on a 10-day retreat sometimes, you might not get an instruction on mindfulness of chetna, of intention. Because oftentimes we don't have time, certainly on the seven-day retreats, etc. So very helpful to bring mindfulness to that, especially in these secluded conditions of retreat. And the kind of most helpful way to do it found, the way we generally instruct on it, is to pick out one or two things that you do on a regular basis during the day, like reaching for a doorknob. See if you can notice the just what's going on in the mind just in the about-to moment before you reach the hand. So notice as you're approaching a doorway, can you notice what happens there, just the moment that happens about to breaching just before the arm moves. Some people describe it as a little energetic pulse in the mind, but I don't know. I don't necessarily think there's an energy there. But there is some. There is a movement in the mind that is an intention, a chetna, to just move the arm. Another possibility is to notice when you go from sitting to standing, can you notice the intention to stand? Or from standing to sitting, can you notice the intention to sit right before you sit down? As a little, possibly energetic, you might experience it as energetic, but it is this chetna, and it's happening all the time. Every time you blink your eyes, can you notice? What about the intention to swallow as the food makes its way through the the chewing, 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 and turns into all these different textures, the taste changing, and then there is an intention before swallowing. So you can check that, those kind of things out to see if you notice this function of mind happening. This chetna. So it can be hard to it's hard to see and, and, and notice that Chaitna actually is running in the background of even our like proliferate, our proliferations of thoughts. At time though, at times though, in deep retreat like this, we may notice the intention to think. Sometimes the mind gets so quiet. We might notice the intention for a thought to arise. Or notice something. It seems like some energetic intention humming along behind a thought process like the, one of those anger stories. It's like, oh, I kind of see there's like this, the mind wants to keep doing this. And part of what we're seeing there is a collection of sankara. There's a sort of wanting, there's a kind of a greed in the mind of some kind or an aversion in the mind. And there's also intention running in the background. Because Chaitanya, in and of itself, doesn't have any particular hope. It's kind of it's neutral in the sense that we can experience a Chaitanya that's that doesn't that isn't accompanied that's either accompanied by wholesome or unwholesome, or maybe even kind of neither intention, wholesome motivations. So we may have a Chaitanya to reach. And the motivation may be very different if we're reaching out to grab a third brownie. 
or if we're reaching out to hold the door for someone, to help them get in from the cold, or if we're reaching out to hug someone or soothe someone if they feel it seems that they're suffering. So it may be motivated by a wholesome intention of greed or generosity or compassion. Intention in and of itself is that neutral factor running in the background. It's the qualities of mind that are also involved in these sankhara that determine whether it's what's happening in the moment is wholesome or unwholesome, onward leading in the practice or not onward leading. So we're practicing with noticing a lot of this already, as you can see. And I know that um, both Winnie and I have been emphasizing and dropping in teachings, offerings, pointing you towards the crucial aspect of the practice of noticing our wholesome mental states and our wholesome qualities, the wholesome qualities that we've cultivated, that you have definitely cultivated to be here and are developing. I talked this morning about patience, just one of them. I'm sure Winnie has touched on many others talked about virya, courage, energy. So crucial to notice that these are sankhara too. Sometimes we get caught up in, in really just talking about the difficult and afflictive aspects of mind and practicing with those because they're so challenging. right? And so and some of the wholesome mental states might be kind of subtle in comparison. This is part of what we, we do in practice is to... Is to kind of begin to realize that some of the wholesome mental states are not so dramatic. (laughs) They might not serve our inner drama queen, you know. But, like, calm, very wholesome mental state. Loving-kindness can be quite subtle, warm. It's important to develop this capacity to notice the wholesome because the more we notice, the more the mind gathers the data of what gives rise more and more to the wholesome and how freeing it's beginning to be to the heart and mind over time. So, But I am going to talk about practicing with some of the inflictive sankhara, the emotions, the mind states, habits of mind... And this is where we really need to be as one of my favorite little quotes from Joseph Goldstein is is that we're all contemplative artists. So we need to be contemplative artists in the sense that we need to practice with the resources, the teachings we've been given, and our own conditioning, which is very, very different from anyone else you might encounter We're practicing with the particular sankhara we have. We're practicing what's coming in this mind stream, this body and mind. And so it takes learning a repertoire often of how to respond to what's coming up. 
be very fascinating to see how although these intentions and emotions and thoughts are not arising out of our control in any given moment, what the practice is telling us is that we, quote-unquote, we can have an influence. There can be an influence. That's what the practice is, trying to influence the mind stream as as we move along through this life. So as I mentioned, sankara is kind of where karma comes into play, where karma comes into play. And so we can begin to shift the way our mind tends to respond by practicing with mindfulness and with the other cultivations, such as the Brahma-viharas. Ajahn Brahmali calls kama investing in your mind. Investing in your mind. So in practicing, we're investing in our mind. So one of the things that the Buddha taught in terms of practicing with our afflictive sankara in a sutta about practicing with distracting thoughts, um, which is a lot of what afflictive sankara involve, um, is replacing, actually, the practice of replacing. So it's not just mindfulness. Of course, the Buddha taught many, many things. But he, one of his recommendations, if you are um, feeling assailed with distracting thoughts, difficult thoughts, is to replace them with wholesome thoughts. And that can be quite skillful at times. When mindfulness is not just enough, it feels like the resources aren't there to just be with it, and that's not really shifting, it's not taking you sufficiently in an onward leading direction. We develop the discernment for that as the contemplative artists we are. We may then turn to something like replacing. So the Buddha said in describing replacing that it's like you're a carpenter and you're striking hard at, pushing out and getting rid of a coarse peg with a fine one. So you may notice, uh, if you happen to notice, thoughts of a particular, that maybe it contain a particular kind of hindrance that's coming up over and over. You can consciously bring in thoughts that are wholesome, that replace that mind state, like practicing with doubt, for example. Doubt thoughts are coming up. You can, exploring your own conditioning, consciously bring to mind thoughts that support a sense of confidence for you. So, for example, remembering any of the benefits that have come from the practice for you. Recalling actual insights, recalling transformations, recalling the sense of gratitude you may have had for the practice. And in that moment, at least, even if the next moment is doubt, again, in that moment, the mind mind state is replaced. In that moment, a seed of a wholesome mind state of confidence is being planted. And we're literally investing in the mind in a way of turning our karma in a different direction. So this karmic law is the more 
we incline our minds in particular directions, the more likely those mind states are to arise again in the future. So if, for example, there's a lot of doubt coming up, we can summon confidence in a way. Or maybe it's not remembering uh, prior insight or transformation. Maybe it's remembering a teaching that was really, really uh, opening for you. You know, maybe it's remembering your intention to come on this retreat or your intention to practice in general. Your deepest intention. What is your deepest intention? Oftentimes that can get us in touch with this recommitment to the practice. Another example of replacing is, is oftentimes our metta practice or our practice of the other Brahma Viharas, this practice of using phrases that's very classical or the other kinds of metta as well, radiating our practices of bringing to mind the wholesome states and are very helpful if there's any form of aversion, any form of aversion from fear to irritation or depression to consciously bring in metta or compassion, or mudita, that's sympathetic joy, happiness in others' good fortune or goodness. And again, even if you're saying the phrases, and for a moment there's a sense of, oh, a dropping of ill will and some goodwill, and then the next moment there's ill will, there is this this practice of replacing and planting the seeds of the more wholesome mind states over time. So I was fascinated to see that Thich Nhat Hanh actually describes the very traditional practice of metta with, with the phrases of metta, you know, like, may I be happy, may I be well, may you be happy, may you be well. He does that by referring to how they reveal the five aggregates, how this practice of metta reveals the five aggregates in our experience. So he says, as we're saying the phrases, we're not just trying to create the mind state by auto-suggestion. The practice is revealing what's going on for us internally. He says, as we're doing the phrases, we look deeply at our body form, our feelings, vedna, our perceptions, our mental formations, sankara, and our consciousness, And in just a few weeks, our aspiration to love will become a deep intention. Love will enter our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And we will notice that we have become peaceful, happy, and light in body and spirit, safe and free from injury, and free from anger, afflictions, fear, and anxiety. When we practice, we observe how much peace, happiness, and lightness we already have. The metta practice allows us to see that. We notice whether we are anxious about accidents or misfortunes or how much anger, irritation, fear, anxiety, or or worry are already in us. As we become aware of the feelings in us, our self-understanding will deepen. We will see how our fears and lack of peace contribute to our unhappiness. And we will see the value of loving ourselves and cultivating a heart of compassion. 
So I think he's pointing here to how if we practice metta, for example, with phrases, what we're exploring is the whole field of what's arising in the body and the mind, including the sankara. We can't help but see the absence or presence of ill will in all kinds of form. And the impact of that on our hearts and minds, whether there's suffering involved in a moment or not, And so even this practice of metta, we're practicing with the aggregates. Oftentimes the teachings of the aggregates feel, can feel like, oh, this is far away, how do I understand this? It's all right here in, the, in these core practices that we are, are doing, have heard about, are talking about. So we can see the force of strongly conditioned sankhara coming up in those kinds of habits of mind, sometimes called karmic knots, the recurring, those recurring things, the ones it's like, oh, here it is again, this shame, this anger, <laughs> you know, this one again, there it is. We practice with it as these contemplative artists. We can also see Sankara showing up in um, the three personalities, right? The greed type, the aversive type, or the deluded type. What is that is it, other than just the most prevalent kind of form of Sankara that comes up for us? And this is a really helpful area of practice, including very much so on retreat. And, you know, it's a place where we can begin to find some humor and maybe some space because, you know, these tendencies, as we see them show up, it's just like tripping over ourselves. It's just kind of like, kind of like the physical comedy of, Dharma practice playing itself out. I have a greed-type friend. And he says, if you ask him, would you like? The answer is always yes. It's just, would you like? Yes. (laughs) This is the experience of life for him. I have a friend, similar, must be a greed-type, who recently admitted that when she was in France over the summer... And she was working there, and because of a somewhat of a gluten allergy, now she's not going to, some people are really going to be harmed, like, like it's really, no, cannot eat any gluten, and then there's folks who have allergies. And she has an allergy, and a gluten allergy, and all of her co-workers knew this, she was in France, and some other people had the allergy too. And, but she was there, and she really wanted to have a croissant. <laughs> Like, really wanted to have a croissant. But she was embarrassed to eat in front of her co-worker. So she took a bus to another town and had a chocolate croissant. You know, these are running our lives, these sankara. And we can, we just notice. And... And have a lot of compassion, as I'll go into. I don't want to just, just first though, I don't want to just diss on the greed types. You know, I'm aversive type, so it's fair to say 
talk about karmic knots, it's sort of a version on top of a version. Always seeing what needs to be improved. Always ready to write a feedback note. (laughs) Scanning the horizon for possible difficult scenarios. This is the life of the aversive type. Stewing. And then there's the deluded. You are in very good company. It might take a while to recognize what sankharas are happening in the mind. <laughs> this is all good. Whatever type you happen to be, and whatever the common sankara, you know, kind of greed, hatred, and delusion, motivations behind that are, you know, fueling and, and motivating your intentions, your chaitana. It's important to have a whole lot of compassion about this. And maybe that's at the level where we can really bring in that compassion if it's difficult in other areas. Because it's so fascinating, isn't it, that as different beings, we're all in the same predicament, okay? It's all about the flow, absolute flow, rapid change of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither that we don't have control of. And that is a predicament we are all in. And we are all trying to find happiness in the midst of that. And some of us will go towards, i got to get push away at the, neg- the unpleasant. And some of us will go to, I must hold on to the pleasant. And some of us will be like, I just got to space out on this whole game. This is just too much. And, you know, when we see that, in our own hearts and minds, how frequently it's like, I gotta get a, I gotta get on a bus to get that croissant. When we see what our minds do to try and find happiness in this and the mistakes we make, you can bring a whole lot of compassion and hopefully a whole lot of compassion for yourself. See it that way. We're just trying to be happy in the midst of this predicament. So, as my teacher, Howie Cohn, used to say, you are not your fault. Your sankara are not your fault. So as we practice, we become more real, more open to our um, patterns of emotion, patterns of thought, others that we may not have wanted to see, might be difficult to see. And this is a beautiful process of becoming more real and learning about our suffering so that we learn to be freer. But it's not not easy, and Sharon Salzberg describes this in a lovely way. She wrote, when I first began my meditative practice, I was only 18. And although I knew I was deeply unhappy, I wasn't aware of the separate strands of grief, anger, and fear roiling inside me. All I felt was a single, seemingly solid bank of sadness. Then through meditation, I began to look within more clearly and detect the various components of my sorrow. What I saw unsettled me so much that I marched up to my teacher, S.N. Goinka, and said accusingly, I never used to be an angry person before I began meditating. Of course, I was hugely angry. My mother had died. I barely knew my father. 
I barely knew myself. When I blamed Mr. Goenka, he simply laughed, then reminded me of the tools I now had to deal with the difficult feelings I used to keep hidden. I could begin to forge a different relationship with my emotions, to find the middle place between denying them and giving over to them because I had acknowledged them. Meditation is like going into an old attic room and turning on the light. In that light, we see everything. The beautiful treasures we're grateful to have unearthed, the dusty, neglected corners that inspire us to say, I'd better clean that up, the unfortunate relics of the past that we thought we had gotten rid of years ago. We acknowledge them all with an open, spacious, and loving awareness. So this is a beautiful process of challenging, calling on us to really bring to bear mindfulness, all the Brahma Viharas. As I was preparing this talk, I realized it was really a seeing through early, early in my practice Sankara that was just, just recreating itself over and over and over again, much to my detriment internally. That was really not, it was just a recreation from conditioning that I didn't need to hold on to at all. That really uh, was for me like my first kind of verified faith experience, my first kind of, oh wow, this practice really kind of works. So early on in my practice, I was sitting at home, and I was practicing for really short periods of time. At that, this is really early in my practice. I was practicing for like five or ten minutes, you know, at at a go. And so I was sitting, and I was just noticing what was happening in my emotions, emotional field, and I noticed this loneliness. And I actually dropped in and just felt it and accepted. Okay, it's here right now. I'm going to try this mindfulness thing on. This loneliness is happening. It feels like this. And I noticed that fueling the loneliness was this thought. Was this thought? It was like, it's just this old, it was very old voice. It was very old. It was like, I'm all alone. Don't, you know, I'm just all alone. And I realized it was so old. And I had created a life with a wonderful partner and a bunch of great friends. And I wasn't all alone. So actually, that particular loneliness really dropped away at that time. I realized, wow, there's just this thought feeling that actually has no basis now in reality. And it dropped away and really shifted, shifted things for me. So at times we can have those openings. At times it takes a lot longer for a conditioned pattern, a lot longer. Many, many, many years for us to practice with them. Another thing that can be helpful, there are so many uh, possibilities that you may find in your practice as a contemplative artist practicing with the Sankara, but one of them can be to actually take refuge, you know, this thousands of year old teaching of taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, however that you would you define that for yourself, how whatever meaning that has for you as it lands. It can be the Buddha, you know, your own capacity for awakening, remembering again the insights or the transformations that you've had, or taking refuge in the Buddha as a person 
who was awakened, who started these teachings rolling and gave to a whole community the capacity to carry them forward to us, taking refuge in the Dhamma, the truth, the teachings, or the Sangha, and spiritual friendship. And this is one area that the Buddha particularly highlighted, taking refuge in the Sangha, as in spiritual friends, to support practicing with difficult, afflictive habits of mind. It's one of my favorite suttas, and it's called the Magiya Sutta, and it involves the Buddha and this one uh, bhikkhu, this more ordained practitioner who was staying with the Buddha alone at a particular time. And Magiya went to the Buddha. They Magiya went on alms round, then he came back and where the Buddha was practicing and um, as he was returning from alms round, Magia saw this beautiful mango grove. You can imagine, just gorgeous mango grove, and it looked a, like a delightful place to practice. You know, maybe not now, but oftentimes we can find delightful places to practice here, places that look really great. And you can imagine Magia's mind state and really wanting to go and practice there in this mango grove. So he asked the Buddha, and the Buddha said, Actually, he said, no, it's better to wait for other bhikkhus. It's better to wait for some of our fellow monastics to come and practice with us. And Magia really wanted to go on and practice in the mango grove. So he asked the Buddha again. And in the suttas, if you ask the Buddha three times, and he says, no, he'll relent the third time. It always happens. So eventually he relents and he says, okay, Magia, you want to go and meditate? How can I continue to say no to you? Go into the mango grove and practice. So Magia goes into the mango grove and practices, but he comes back and he's kind of crushed and he's confused. He said, I went to this mango grove to practice, but I was beset mostly by three kinds of bad, unskillful thoughts, namely sensual, malicious, and cruel thoughts. You know, thoughts of greed, thoughts of cruelty, maybe even towards himself. And then what did the Buddha say? The Buddha said, this is why I said you should wait. Wait for other practitioners to come to practice with. Because there are five things that help with the maturing of the practice. And the first is good friends, companions, and associates in the practice. So coming to this place, like a place like this, to practice, is a very skillful thing. It does support us, doesn't it? Being able to see others have to practice also. Feeling that we're in a community where there's a container and people are creating a sense of commitment to non-harm, as we just did at the beginning, before the talk. It really helps to mature the practice. That's what the Buddha said. And he said this was the first thing, to have good friends, companions, and associates. And then the other four were all supported by having good friends, companions, and associates. The other four were being ethical, having thoughts of immersion and wisdom and freedom, basically wholesome thoughts arousing energy for the practice and being wise, 
these other four, he said, they can be expected to arise if we have good friends, companions, and associates. So returning to Sangha and to spiritual friendship, a great and crucial support in practicing with what's difficult that comes up in our mind, the sankhara, the proliferation of thought. So just a reminder to notice the wholesome. Notice that which in you is already developed that supports the practice. It must be here. You had the had the mind state that brought you here to practice with these good friends, associates, and companions. And keep recalling it to mind. Recall the commitment to non-harm as a really core practice that is really taught much more in the, you know, where in the Asian context and the Asian um, countries where a lot of the Buddha Dharma is taught a lot is to do the basic practice of recalling um, our commitment to non-harm and our non-harming actions to fill the mind with a sense of contentment and gladness. And we can do this even every night. I, I was really moved by um, hearing from, on it was actually something I had watched online by a Thai monk. He said that one of the things they were taught uh, in their training is every night to go to bed on a sea of merit. So to recall all the good and wholesome things that they've done in the day, whether it was chanting or practicing, um, everything that they had done would actually be good in that context, more or less. Renou- the, ren- the life of renunciation they had chosen. And there's many, all of this is happening for you. I have no doubt about it, not just here, but outside. Remember the simple things. It doesn't have to be a huge world-saving action to be good, wholesome, sitting, just attending to the capacity of your mind to develop more compassion and wisdom is a great gift and contributes to that sea of merit. So with that, let's chant together the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.